0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 40 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. Happy 40th, Gavin. Yeah, happy 40th. Um, I feel like that's
1: some kind of special birthday. I was honestly not all that old when my parents turned 40, so it's like I don't really remember their 40th birthdays, if there was anything special. I know 50 is the big one, which we'll get to, you know, what, in like November, probably? Sometime,
0: but something like that in a few months, I, uh, I was quite young when uh, my mother turned 40 and all I'm roughly aware of is that there was a bunch of people at my house for a, a party and mm-hmm. I've since found out as I'm getting older that it was a surprise party for my mother that hates surprises and my dad <laughs> paid for that one for months is oh, what I'm I was sure. told, but I was, I'm sure I was probably five or six. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but so yeah, this but, is, uh, this is number 40 for us. Mm hmm. But
1: really quickly, uh, before we get into any of the actual content for uh, this episode, I want to plug something not at all affiliated with us, but something that's just a really great resource for anybody interested in paleontology. Uh, There is a wonderful uh, paleontologist by the name of Thomas Holtz, who is, uh, I believe, at the University of Maryland. And he, uh, I believe, I don't know if it's every fall or every other fall, but every so often, he teaches basically like a dinosaurs 101 course. Uh, because that's what he studies is he's he's one of the good dinosaur researchers that I actually enjoy. Um, <laughs> but he records all of his lectures and makes them just freely available on YouTube, which is excellent. I really wish that more um, people would do this and it's it's mostly uh, I, I think it's on, honestly more on the institution allowing it than it is the professor actually doing it. I'm sure there are some professors who like wouldn't be bothered even if the institution was cool with it, but uh, you know, most institutions probably aren't a huge fan of people learning from their professors without them getting some kind of money out of it. Yeah. So uh, Mm -hmm. props both to uh, Dr. Holtz and the university of Maryland for, for allowing it. But uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. There's a whole uh, YouTube playlist that I believe has four or five uh, of his lectures that he's done so far, um,
0: and he'll continue cool. to add them throughout the semester. Is there any like? Uh, are we going to be turning any of these lectures into episodes on their own, or is it not that kind of a uh, not that kind of a thing?
1: I mean, I've, I haven't watched through them myself. I, I've listened to a lot of uh, and like read a lot of his you know his papers and things in the past, sort of just for fun in my own time. So I'm a nerd. Uh, mm-hmm so like, I know that he does good work. Um, I haven't listened to any of these particular videos in this playlist that I'll be linking. Um, but I'll be doing that sort of soon. And if, if something strikes me from some, something that he says in his lectures, uh, we'll definitely uh, go from there, but
0: awesome. Well, that sounds great. And that'll be, that'll be the first link in the show notes followed by our, uh, our usual quad links that come after that, where you can follow us on Twitter, suggest a topic, all that good stuff. Yeah, I'll be in the show notes. So before we get into today's topic, do we have anything on the calendar? We sure do. So see if I can af- go two for after
1: two. after last week's
0: success. Yeah. Do you have
1: another correct guess?
0: Um, so I have tied my record for going one in a row. Uh, I'm gonna mm-hmm. go 2011. Sorry, <laughs> not even close. It is
1: it is 2016 again.
0: No, really,
1: Okay. It is. Um, should have stuck with that one. So the only reason I picked this one, because there's one later within like this week uh, uh, in science that has a much more interesting to me, just be like, what, how uh, <laughs> sort of headline. That one is Invisibility Cloak Invented. And just me as like a Harry Potter loser nerd that I am. We don't enjoy We do not endorse JK Rowling on this podcast. Uh, it is my own personal headcanon that Daniel Radcliffe wrote the Harry Potter series, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but I just see Invisibility Cloak and I'm like, what? Excuse me? But the one that we're actually going with is from uh, Wednesday. So the day that this goes out, uh, September 15th, 2016. The headline is Rattlesnake Ancestors Had an Arsenal
0: of Venoms. Mm, had an arsenal of venoms. What do they mean by, what does arsenal mean?
1: We will find out. Okay. So biologists from the University of Wisconsin, Madison published a study documenting the genetic history of the common rattlesnake. I really wish they'd give a species for that because I don't, I'm not myself familiar with any species called the common rattlesnake.
0: Can you you do a quick Google
1: on that for me, Mike?
0: Common rattlesnake. I can make that happen. And I will
1: continue. So, according to their research, the ancestors of these snakes were not limited to a single venom, but instead they had access to several toxins that individually targeted the blood, muscle, or nervous systems of bite victims. Though this capacity was lost millions of years ago, the findings shed light on the way in which genetic specificity evolves over time.
0: So, the according to Britannica, I guess the okay. most common species is the timber rattlesnake. In the okay. eastern United States, yes. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I, I guess that's. I, gonna,
1: yeah. I I've never heard it called that because we actually technically have there. There are timber rat, timber rattlesnakes that live in New York. Really fun fact: when I lived in South Dakota, it actually kind of blew my mind that there are more species of rattlesnake that live in New York than there are that live in South Dakota, which was weird. Um, I would not have guessed that they're just much more common in South Dakota, but yeah. There's the timber rattlesnake, the uh, Muasagua rattlesnake and actually I guess those are the only two rattlesnakes, but there's also technically copperheads uh, in South or in uh, New York as well whereas in uh, South Dakota there's only a single species of venomous snake and that is the prairie rattlesnake anywho. Uh, I've never heard timber rattlesnakes called common rattlesnakes which is why I really wish that this calendar... And I'm positive, obviously, that they specified what animal they were using in the study. Otherwise, they're just not good scientists. Um, but right, it's
0: like, did the calendar run out of ink here? Like, they could have just said what species it was.
1: Right, and it's like, there's still a substantial portion of the, this calendar page that's, like, empty at the bottom of the paragraph. But, anywho, <laughs> we, alwe- we always have to critique the, the calendar somehow, but... Um, As is tradition. This, this isn't inherently surprising to me that they had sort of a mixture of uh, toxins. Because it's not like... So venom is actually a really complex mixture of toxins. So it's not like, you know, each species has a different combination of different toxins. But it's not like each species has a single toxin that's unique to it. Which is sort of how this makes right, it okay. sound. Um, mm-hmm. Venom, regardless if it's from a spider or a snake or um, even like a jellyfish or something, is very complex. And uh, so this, this isn't inherently surprising, but again, they just probably kind of word it not the best because it sort of implies that rattlesnakes have a relatively simple venom. And like I, and, I,
0: yeah
1: I don't know how complex it is relative to like cobra venom or like scorpion venom or something like that, Um, but to imply that it's simple is probably just not that accurate. Cause like I said, Venom is just, it's like, it's a cocktail is how it's commonly referred. It's a whole mixture of
0: a bunch of different proteins. So once again, the, uh, the calendar has teased us and then let us down pretty much, hopefully
1: unlike this episode, which I think is going to be really fun. Uh, so I asked Mike, as soon as we started this call, how familiar he was with the concept of
0: cryptozoology. And this is, this is one of the few things that uh, like I have heard of and I have a very, very small amount of experience mm-hmm. with when I first heard of this. So just as, as a quick background, apparently uh, Gavin's girlfriend's mother was listening <laughs> to the show <laughs> yes. and said that our most recent episode was a little complex, which I would agree which with. Which it was, it was. It was a high-level episode and uh we needed something that was a little bit more let's just say on my level for this episode. <laughs> and so this is what Gavin prepared for us, which I'm really looking forward to.
1: Yeah, so it's not just about cryptozoology and and some of the the various quirks that go along with that, but also how it relates to paleontology specifically because there are many different ways to sort of approach the concept of cryptozoology. Uh but seeing as this is a mainly paleontology-focused podcast, we're going to come at it from that angle. Um, it's actually funny. So I've actually seen cryptozoology actually uh, been proposed as actually. Let's talk about what cryptozoology is first, because I sure, don't. What, want, what are we I, talking about? Yeah, I don't want to assume that people just know what it means. So cryptozoology is generally a pretty broad term that can kind of range from. Anything from like amateur scientists just kind of going out and having a good time to very like bro or like frat culturey pseudoscience. And th- that's sort of like the main two camps that there kind of are in cryptozoology. But let's go over some actual definitions. So according to the International Cryptozoology Museum <laughs> they should be good in Portland, Maine. Uh, It is the study of hidden or unknown animals, typically large species. This would be things like your Bigfoot, your Loch Ness Monster, um, things of that nature.
0: Things that notoriously don't exist.
1: Yes. Depending on who you ask, apparently. Well, so So that that is the definition that the International Cryptozoology Museum itself uses. The definition from Wikipedia calls it, a pseudoscience or subculture that aims to prove the existence of entities from the folklore record—you know, animals and creatures that are not known to science but are known to regions, you know, known to people living in a specific
0: area—the kinds of things that show up in like children's TV shows and you know the History Channel. Yes, and we'll talk about that. Um,
1: and then lastly. Uh, So, both of those kind of hit the opposite, like the, I guess, ends of the spectrum, where like the International Cryptozoology Museum probably wants to portray it in sort of the best light, whereas the Wikipedia straight up calls it a pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And I think the, there's, this is the definition from Merriam Webster is sort of, sort of hits that middle ground, where it's the study of and search for animals, and especially legendary animals in parentheses, such as Sasquatch usually in order to evaluate the possibility of their
0: existence. What was the last part of that? Usually to do what with their existence? To evaluate the possibility I think of their existence. That's a very th- interesting word, evaluate. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a little generous, if I'm being honest. Um, I to say, because it seems like with a lot of what I'm familiar with, cryptozoology, and imagine if you're the listener, imagine you are somebody that, is um, getting into this, or you're somebody that's really into cryptozoology, and you, right. um, are inv- you are, let's say, evaluating Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, you could approach it in one of two ways. You could approach it you know, with the scientific method, not coming in with any um, you know, preconditions um, and just trying to evaluate the data you know, where they may lie, mm-hmm. or you could go there trying to prove the Loch Ness Monster exists or trying to find evidence of Bigfoot existing. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to imagine the kind of people that are going through, you know, in participating in cryptozoology, you can imagine that it's a lot more of the latter and not the former mm-hmm. that are kind of going into this field. So I think evaluates a very neutral term that maybe isn't quite warranted here. And we will talk about that because some things that
1: sort of technically fall under the umbrella of cryptozoology are do follow the scientific method and and do you know, what I would consider is good science. Uh, However, some of it is definitely pseudoscience. So since one of the definitions used that, and since we just sort of talked about it, let's let's talk about pseudoscience, uh, you know, itself, especially because there's been, sadly, much, much too much of it going on in the last 18 months or so. (laughs) So pseudoscience, the, the best definition that I was sort of able to find for it is not like pretending, you know, pseudoscience literally means fake science. However, that's not entirely accurate, but I can't think of a better term to use instead. But it's basically using scientific words and using scientific sounding terms in like an authoritative way without actually following the scientific method.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in my head, as I think about this, it's kind of one of those things, like you said, using scientific terms and having that veneer of authenticity. And you can even just straight up tell people, yeah, you can go, you know, check the paper yourselves or do your own research. And when you say that kind of thing, do your own research, that gives a lot of people the idea, well, if they're just saying, do your own research, well, the, clearly these guys did what did their research clearly, right. you know, this person that's talking to me knows what they're talking about. I don't need to investigate that much further. And so it's definitely like that, as you meant, like the, that veneer of authenticity, that, that mm-hmm. sounding scientific, you know, they're probably wearing lab coats and they might have one guy that got their PhD from, you know, Nowhere University. And in, in like nutraceutical science or something like that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Na-
1: naturopathic medicine. Of course. Um, so that is what a lot of people see cryptozoology as, where... You know, cryptozoology. You know, things that end in ology generally sound scientific, and I think it's a cool word because you know, zoology means the study of animals. Crypto uh, means hidden or secret. That is sort of the traditional. Like, I think I think that's actually Greek. Uh, uh, like what what that root comes from. So it's the study of hidden animals, um, which is depending on who you ask, actually pretty apt. Um, and so this is a really interesting sort of intersection between some areas of this that are kind of science and, and areas that are definitely not. And a big part of why they are not is because they are convinced that this animal exists. However, they are going out to find the evidence that it exists which is the complete opposite of the actual scientific method because the scientific method is very circular. You know, you start out with an observation, you create a hypothesis to test, you know, a question about that observation. You know, how did this, you know, uh, event occur? We see this, you know, layer of rocks that looks different than the rest. Why is it like that? You run some tests that might be chemical tests Uh, That might be, you know, grain size analysis, different kinds of geological uh, tests that you can run. And then you evaluate your hypothesis based on the results of the test. And then you make new observations based on the data that you collected and create a new hypothesis. And it's very circular. However, with things like cryptozoology, as some people do it, they start off at the... I have the, you know, before the observation step in the loop, essentially. So they, it, it's, they, they put the cart before the horse, essentially. Yes. They're at their conclusion and they're looking for evidence to support it instead of finding evidence that you then make a conclusion off of. And, uh, the reason that I also want to do this, cause I thought about maybe waiting for to, to do this episode around like Halloween sort of spooky times. Uh, <laughs> but then <laughs> I kind of watch. remembered. Yeah. Um, I kind of remembered as this idea kind of popped in my head, how much of a personal connection that I had with cryptozoology as a kid. Really? Yeah. So I did not know this. Okay. Um, like, so if you were a fan of, I believe I don't remember. If it, I don't honestly remember if it was on the History Channel or if it was on National Geographic. I'm inclined to say National Geographic, but there was a show that I actually looked up that ran from 2007 to 2010 called Monster Quest. It was a wonderful Monster show More that I loved at the time. That was very mockumentary esque and something that I definitely would hate. Nowadays, because it reminds me everything that I've read about it in doing some of the research for this episode, reminds me a lot of the megalodon stuff that I kind of ranted about uh, during Shark Week, <laughs> where it doesn't oh, History Channel, by the way, History Channel. Okay, thank you. Um, it doesn't come right out and say, "Hey, this is probably all fake," and at least that's partially because the people that are featured in each episode probably do believe in what they're saying. They're just pseudoscientists. <laughs> um, yeah. So like to those people, it is real. Unlike the Megalodon stuff where it's like, they know that it's fake. They're just doing it for entertainment. These at least had some kind of veneer of reality, but I love that. People are doing it are kid. true believers. Yes. yes. I love that show as a kid. And it honestly influenced me a lot. And I actually, uh, I don't remember if it was seventh or eighth grade, uh, like home economics class. I don't remember what the context of the like the project or something was, but we were to write a fu- letter to our future selves, that sort of shtick. And mm-hmm. apparently at the time, I was very into cryptozoology because in that letter, I wrote to myself. I don't even remember when they got back to me, um, whether it was like after okay. senior year or a couple of years after senior year. But uh, in the letter, I wrote to myself that I wanted to be a cryptozoologist. <laughs> So like this was something that I was interested in, in enough to want to potentially make a career out of it when I was like 13. Um But yeah, so this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart as uh as as a kid. But yes, clearly. So what kind of things are we talking about here? We've sort of gone over a few of the more famous ones, and we'll definitely go more in depth on uh, some of some of the more famous ones in a bit. But the term cryptid, which is sort of the catch all term for these animals or creatures that are spoken of in these myths and legends and things that crypto's well just try to find. So what what sort of cryptids can you sort of name off the
0: top of your head? Cryptid. So these are like the kinds of things that they're trying to find? Yes. So I'm um, so we talked about Bigfoot. Mm-hmm um, are Bigfoot and Sasquatch the same thing?
1: Yeah, they're more or less like there's like regional differences. Nearly every region, uh, has some kind of legend about a giant ape,
0: oh, of course, human
1: don't. thing. So like there's <laughs> Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, uh, Yeti. I believe in, in Florida, there's one called the skunk ape. Um, I think in Australia they have, yeah, in Australia, I think they have a legend that's called the Bunyip, I think is the the name of that one. Uh, but most regions have some kind of folklore about some kind of large human like ape thing.
0: Okay, so we can, we'll lump all those together under like the Bigfoot category. Yep. Uh, Loch Ness Monster. Yep, that's a, that's a really classic one that we'll break down in a bit. Um, New Jersey devil.
1: Ooh, that's a good one that I hadn't thought about, but yeah, that's also a really good one. Um, that's one that's okay. Weirdly super popular in Japan for some, for some reason. Is it okay? Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, And the only reason that I know that is because one of my favorite Pokemon is based off of it. Um, but (laughs) yeah, so the, uh, the New Jersey devil is something that was like from like only like a single or maybe two police reports that happened in somewhere in New Jersey, but some kind really? of alien like uh, creature. Um, and I don't know like what it did to warrant somebody writing a police report about it or, or something, but I just know that it became very
0: popular in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, oh goodness. What else? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, and I'm coming up with like mermaids and stuff, which I think mm-hmm. might even be stretching for cryptos. No, that, that that usually that that falls in this category
1: pretty Does, bro- okay. broadly. Um, but the, yeah, the, I'm kind of at my limit. What else? Mm-hmm. What are some other big ones? Those are the main ones that probably most people think of. One that right. uh, I sort of hear about a lot is uh, you hear about a handful of dinosaurs or dinosaur-like. Animals living in you know like the, the jungles of Africa, um, mm-hmm. as well, which which we'll break down again similar to the Loch Ness Monster in a little bit here. Um, but something that I wanted to point out with cryptids is that it is usually that's what people think of is things like Bigfoot, things like Loch Ness Monster, but it also sort of broadly includes w- weird versions of uh, otherwise normal animals. So, for example. Oh. Like are we talking like hybrid stuff? Like you know, human whatever hybrids. Potentially, that's that's a little more science fictiony. Okay, um, but this would be things like, uh, for example, I lived in South Dakota for two years. Uh, the symbol of the jackalope is pretty much everywhere out there. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, the jackalope is just jackalope. A, a jackrabbit with like the horns or antlers of uh like a a deer.
0: Or something, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie. Like you, if you just said jackalope to me, I probably wouldn't even realize that wasn't a real thing, and I probably just would have (laughs) thought like I just like it. Mm -hmm. it, I'm sure that I knew that at some point, but yeah, I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, jackalope. I know what that is. Right, and that also sort of falls in the
1: category of just like really large, like particularly unusually giant. Uh, individuals of certain things, you know, like giant snakes, giant crocodiles, okay. you know, um, generally fall sort of in the umbrella of cryptozoology as well, because, you know, I'm sure down in Florida, everybody and their brother thinks that like, oh, they've seen a 20, 25 foot alligator. And it's like, no, you, you haven't. Right. You, you probably thought you did. Like, yeah, I don't think right, you're like, right. I think you're just wrong. Right, exactly. Like, I I believe that you believe that, but that's factually not true. Um, So things like that also broadly fall in the terms of cryptozoology, although much less sort of sinister, I guess, or Mm pseudoscience-y, because, like, would it be absolutely impossible to find a giant alligator? No, but by giant, I mean, like, 15 Mm -hmm. feet? Is like the usual like max for like at least American alligators. Some like, you know, saltwater crocodiles. Now crocodiles do get, you know, a bit bigger than that. But right. um, it's
0: it's one of those like there's gradations with all of this stuff. Like,
1: yeah, for if, sure.
0: If, you know, if the Loch Ness monster was discovered, that would that would upend you know, kind of everything that you correct me from that would sort of upend everything we know about, you know, the biology of that region. Versus if we found a 20-foot gator, like, that would be wild, but, like, that could be fit in to, you know, what is currently understood without too much modification. That would mostly be like, okay, this alligator
1: has a crazy pituitary gland problem or something. Right. Just, like just in the explained. same case. right. Whereas, right. there's actually been studies, um, not recently, but... Uh, that got published in like nature. so like one of the like preeminent, one of the highest class, you know, science uh, journals in, in the world uh, about like the ecological requirements that would be needed to support an animal like the Loch Ness monster in Loch Ness. Right. And it's like, yeah, this is just not a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, It would need way too much food. It would be way too large. This is just not something that is uh, ecologically possible, as we understand currently. Um, And that is generally the case with a lot of the more traditional cryptids, things like Bigfoot. Um, But something that is sort of talked about with cryptozoologists a lot is, well, there's been all sorts of animals that we didn't know about for a long
0: time. And then we found them. They turned out to be real. This got, this was going to be one of my questions. Mm-hmm. Like, is there anything that has gone from cryptozoology, you know, things that were, you know, laughed at by the, you know, the scientific establishment and then, um, and then like was discovered and went from being a pseudoscience to something that was commonly understood or is it, has that never happened? Is there different processes that, that goes through? Like what, has there been any success stories from cryptozoology, I guess is what I'm asking
1: modern cryptozoology not really there's one case that i'll talk about um but the the one that cryptozoologists point to a lot is an animal called the okapi okay so the okapi is uh the closest living relative to giraffes uh it doesn't look super like a giraffe its neck is much shorter uh it's got much shorter legs in general um and it's very brown it's coat doesn't really have like the sort of spotted pattern that a giraffe does but on its back legs it has black and white stripes like a zebra
0: Hmm.
1: so um and it lives in like in like the super super dense forest of central africa in uh the congo rainforest so an area that is not particularly well explored um even still to today other than by like native peoples and so uh European sort of explorers and <clears throat> colonizers uh, got there in sort of the 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 a lot of the records that I found were from like the late 1880s or so um, mm-hmm. and they'd been sort of told about this animal uh, but they they hadn't been able to find one and then eventually they found uh, they were brought the the native peoples were like oh no there's this there's this animal out here that you know, I don't know how it came up, but it just sort of came up in conversation. Maybe they were like, okay, we want to see all of the animals here. You know, what animals have we not seen yet with, you know, as you, as our guide, you know? Right. Um, And so they're, they're very elusive animals. You know, they, they don't like people good for them. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Humans have a bad habit of killing large animals. Oh, very, is that, is very, that thing we do? very frequently, yeah. We like to kill all of the large, especially hooved animals that won't kill us back. Okay. Um, but yeah, so they eventually were brought a skull uh, and they're like, OK, so it's a weird giraffe, you know, based on its skull. Um, and I think that they had been brought most of those things in like 1901 or so, and it was formally named later that year in 1901. So they'd been sort of told about it okay. for, for a decent amount of time. Uh, beforehand and then it was like formally published and named like given a scientific name in 1901 so that is sort of the main one that is
0: more than a century ago uh,
1: exactly Um, another that is actually sort of the mascot of that international cryptozoology museum that I mentioned earlier their sort of mascot is the coelacanth which we've talked about before right so the coelacanth is sort of the quintessential quote-unquote living fossil which as we talked about is a term that I don't like mm-hmm. but uh and it's sort of the reason why cryptozoologists really talk about the coelacanth a lot is because this animal like just kind of evaded the fossil record for 66 million years you know mm-hmm. and so they're like well if this could do it why can't other things which is a really bad I need to brush up on, like, the different kinds of logical fallacies,
0: but I'm <laughs> yes. sure that's one Which, of them. <laughs> I, yeah, right. I, th- I, that had have to be somewhere. Logical fallacies is just one of my favorite things to look at. It's like, oh, I, I should be making this argument better myself.
1: Right, exactly. Um, and the, the coelacanth has a lot of really special things about it that helped it evade the fossil record. Number one, it's the fossil record. It's inherently not great right uh number two is that they are fish you know things a lot of other you know cryptids things like bigfoot have big robust bones you know they're big bodied animals right big bodied animals leave big bones big bones are easier to find and are just much more likely to be preserved to begin with there's a reason why you find way more like you know, whole elephant bones than you do whole mice bones. Yeah. My mice are just, their bones are way more fragile because they're so much smaller and fish have very small bones. Uh, I, and oh, I'll go all go checks out. And then lastly, especially with coelacanths in particular, where they live is not good for producing fossils. They live in a really, really deep ocean. Um, mostly on seamounts, like on underwater mountains, essentially, they live along the cliffs. Um, and so those things have really helped coelacanths stay hidden, at least this particular lineage of coelacanths. Not all coelacanths are like that, but this particular lineage is. And okay. a, a, and some other things that also help them or help cryptozoologists sort of latch onto them is that we actually knew about coelacanths from fossils. Before we knew that they were still alive. Really? Yeah. So the genus Coelacanthus wow. is, is a fossil genus um, that was named, I think, like, I think like exactly a hundred years. I think it was, yeah, like 1839 or thereabout. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, modern living Coelacanths were found, uh, at least the first one that was found was found in 1938. So it's been less than 100 years since we've known about this one. And then the Indonesian species of coelacanth we just found in 1999. So it's like, wow. well, we just found out about it. And, and these are not small fish either. Coelacanth can be like six feet long. So like, they're not small fish. So I, I understand why uh, cryptozoologists latch on to them. But it's like you, either you don't
0: understand how fossils work. Or you do and you don't care. Yeah, right. Um, Again, this goes back to using something to push an agenda instead of, you know, exactly. following, you're following the facts where they may lie.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and there are some relatively recent, although with some asterisks, um, examples of finding new species. So one, there is a new species of taper. Uh, Named from Central America. So taper are rhino relatives. They're essentially like, if you've ever seen something that looks like a pig, but with like a little tiny elephant trunk, that's a taper. Um, So a new species was named in 2013 uh, from South America. And these are not small animals. They can be, you know, several hundred pounds. Wow. And this, this one in particular was a case of, you know, native peoples in the area being like, N- no, there's there's a different kind here that we we know about. You know, we are aware of our local animals, you know. And scientists mm-hmm. finally, you know, sort of recognized it as as another species. And then similarly, uh, a new species of peccary, which are close pig relatives. Uh, pigs are only from the old world, though. If they're from, like, native to... Uh, the Americas, they're peccaries, different families, it's taxonomy, it's weird, whatever. Um, <laughs> but so the, it's called the giant peccary, and that was named in 2007, also from uh, Central America or South America. However, mm-hmm. these are cases of people sort of quibbling over taxonomy, where it's like, some people are like, no, this is just a weird population of this species that we already know. Some the people who obviously published the papers were like, "No, we have evidence to suggest it is its own species." And it's like, okay, so we knew that they were there; they just might be slightly different than the ones that are around them. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, "Hey, we have tapers here. Oh, here's this, you know, extinct giant taper that we haven't seen in thirty million years." That's not what's going on here. It's just very closely related things that there might technically be a difference between. Again, these yeah. these are things that cryptozoologists latch onto where it's like we've we right. just these found are the a new taper. Stories. Yes. Um, and that's kind of something that I if I were to meet somebody who's, you know, spends a decent amount of time doing cryptozoology, I'm like, does that count as cryptozoology? Like like those scientists I mean, who who went out and especially with the taper because like I said they talked to native people who were like, "No, there's a different kind here." Um I would argue that that probably counts, right? Because that's that's the main thing with cryptozoology is that it's talk, dealing with, you know, creatures from folklore. And a, a term that's actually kind of thrown around a decent amount with cryptozoology is called ethno-known. You know, known through, you know, the, you know, folklore or just like
0: stories of, of a particular region. Yeah, I mean... I guess it definitely, you know, it feels a little bit off, but yeah, I, you know, if it's, if that's, if something was unknown to, you know, science, but was kind of passed down through oral tradition and then, you know, people discovered it, I guess that falls under at least some not of cryptozoology and then mm-hmm. uh, comes out of cryptozoology and just becomes part of, you know, science. Right. So that's kind of what I would call
1: like the good side of cryptozoology and it, by that, I mean, actually going and communicating with native peoples about their own wildlife, because obviously they would know it better. Right. Then, you know, obviously like native peoples in South America would know their local wildlife better than some researcher from North America. You know, mm-hmm. no, no matter how much they study the area, you know, the natives are just going to know it better. Right. Full, full stop. And so... That's a really interesting way of potentially finding new animals that granted, I don't know how often used that kind of approach is, um, but obviously communicating more with native peoples instead of just going there and taking their stuff is probably good. Uh, generally. So, uh, and potentially using that as well as a, uh, sort of excuse for like preserving some like native, especially forest habitats. You know, because we're mm-hmm. doing a real good job of destroying those real fast.
0: Sarcasm noted.
1: Yeah. So that's sort of, like I said, sort of the good side of, of cryptozoology. So let's sort of move on to maybe the not so good side. And that's the conveniently fun the fun side, which, which we will come back to at the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is conveniently where paleontology kind of comes into it. So. Paleontology is really often sort of brought into cryptozoology because many people who are like in the I keep want to say like crypto community, but I feel like that's going to refer to like cryptocurrency.
0: Yeah, but
1: <laughs> but in in the cryptozoology community, they often use the fossil record sort of as an excuse or like to find ways in which their their creature of choice could exist today and hmm. it's kind of painfully convenient for cryptozoologists that the fossil record is sometimes not good because so it's like if coelacanths could do it like I said if coelacanths could do it why can't Bigfoot be some giant ape thing that we just never got the good fossils of And to that, I say, I have no way of proving that that's not true. It's hard to prove a negative. But that's exactly, (laughs) but that's not how science works. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes back to the whole, is this like a a straw man logical fallacy? I think is what this one is where it's like statement prove me wrong.
0: I mean, it's, uh, (sighs) I don't know if that's quite a straw. a straw man. Is like you know building up a caricature of okay, yeah, so it'd be like you know you say what are you saying that it's impossible to discover other species? It's okay, like, well, no, it's not what we're saying. I think, new, um, and I just want to be, be clear: new species are discovered all the time, absolutely, constantly,
1: and that's why I sort of specified uh, from the International Cryptozoology Museum that they they even specify on their website that it's typically large species because new beetles and things, God, are published multiple new species of beetle like every day or even things like new frogs from like central and south america or or central
0: africa literally all the time um yeah i mean what i what i would attribute that more to and this isn't a perfect fit but are you familiar with uh christopher hitchens is is that the guy sitting behind the little desk table in a park meme uh no no okay like then the, the the, no i am the not. change my mind guy <laughs> yes that's that's what i was thinking yeah so, very, very different guy, that's uh Stephen okay. Crowder, um, yes, okay, that makes sense, very different. Uh, yeah, uh, Christopher Hitchens um he's long dead. he had um, <laughs> he said something uh, I shouldn't say long dead. it was probably about a decade or so now okay he had um something that's kind of been um put into kind of a logical um razor, um basically said you know anything that um if you are asserting something that is kind of grand that would you know really change things. The burden of proof is on you to prove that. The burden of proof is not on somebody else to prove is that wrong. Is he extraordinary the, claims? Yes, extraordinary yeah. claims require extraordinary evidence. Is basically right. the the um, genesis of it, and it's not on somebody else to prove it wrong. Exactly, and that's that's just
1: a general piece of advice that I think most people could take. Where it's like you can't just oh, make yes. a you can't just make a claim and then not be able to back it up. Well, you can, but it's well, bad. you can but you're not good. And for some reason, that is an argument that wins far too often in our political discourse. Anyway, moving on. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, there are lots of cryptids that are discussed in terms of being sort of relics or like holdovers from, you know, fossil groups that are real or at least were real. Um, that it lived at some time, and that these cryptids are just sort of a leftover member of that group that we that escaped the fossil record, similar to how coelacanths did. And so some of them are fairly obvious. Um, very commonly, plesiosaurs, which uh, we've talked about a whole bunch. We will do an episode on them specifically eventually. But these are your long-necked, uh, ocean-dwelling reptiles from the time of the dinosaurs. They look, in fact, I often describe them whenever I talk about them on the podcast, like the Loch Ness Monster. They have <laughs> the sort of almost sea turtle-like body. Very sort of, you know, stomach to back, flattened, rounded with flippers, and then a long, snaky neck. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been co-opted, not just for the Loch Ness Monster, but for sea monsters of every variety, since they were discovered in... Uh, sort of the early 1800s or so. So they've they've sort of been scapegoated throughout, you know, the last couple hundred years as sea monster of your choice. (laughs) Right. Uh, We have uh, another uh, extinct group of reptiles, uh, dinosaurs in general, sort of like we talked about uh, in uh, Africa, which we'll break down a little further in in a little bit here but there's always been as as you know basically once uh you know the europe started really getting into like the interior of africa and doing all of their colonial things in there right uh all sorts of legends about ancient animals existing in this primitive land um and all sorts of other tropes and things like that um obviously dinosaurs paleontology so I hear about these quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one that actually I I hate that I actually like <laughs> um is Gigantopithecus which is <laughs> uh the largest uh ape that we've ever found in the fossil record. Okay. This is a group that many people are like, oh, Bigfoot evolved from, is is either Gigantopithecus or something that is descended from Gigantopithecus. And oh, there are many reasons that this is definitely not true.
0: <laughs> but
1: um, and it, I, I again, I hate myself that I kind of like it because it's recent. You know, we're still we don't have great Gigantopithecus fossils but They went extinct potentially as, you know, short ago as like 100,000 years. Okay. Most things that I saw said closer to like 300,000, but still that's not long ago. So just because our last fossils might've been from that long ago, that's a really short amount of time. Right. For something just because we don't have fossils there. That's only 300,000 years it's not unreasonable for something to escape the fossil record for 300,000 years that's nothing um however there's again we'll we'll I'll break this down in a bit but those are sort of just mm-hmm. some of the animals that are co-opted uh into you know various cryptids and 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 folklore as well as like i mentioned earlier just giant you know x creature of of your choosing uh just because things being giant is sort of a a trope of how we used to sort of think about like the fossil record Mm -hmm. where it's like, yes, like giant snakes did exist in the past. giant crocodiles did exist in the past, but not everything was always giant (laughs) in, (laughs) in the fossil record. You know, we have real small snakes and we have real small crocodilians just like we do today. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's also some potential thoughts as to like, you know, oh, I saw this 40 foot snake. It might be Titanoboa, you know, which, which is an actual name for a snake. Uh, it's a genus of snake from like 15 million years ago or so, but okay. Yeah. But no, no, you didn't see a 40 foot snake anyway. No, nothing. Uh, and this also includes Megalodon, which we talked about at length, uh, in our discussion about shark week. And something I think is really telling, especially about, uh, some of the more reptilian based cryptids is that they tend to fall into the old stereotypes of how we used to think these animals worked like the old timey view of how we viewed dinosaurs, how we viewed plesiosaurs, uh, so while our scientific understanding of these groups has changed and, and been updated, the cryptozoological view of the cryptids that are most likely based off of these animals has not. Mm-hmm. And that is particularly why with like the Loch Ness Monster, you see it with a really long upright neck sticking straight up out of the water when nowadays we know that plesiosaurs almost certainly could not do that. But that was how they were depicted for a long, a long time, Um, Mm -hmm. a long time of their history. And uh, some some really interesting things kind of go along with uh, both the Loch Ness Monster and some of the dinosaur like things in Africa. Uh, So with the Loch Ness Monster, the first sighting of Nessie was in 1933.
0: Not all that long ago, right? I mean, not in the grand scheme of things. Like if we're talking about folklore and whatnot, I'd expect right. it to be, there's multiple stories going back to, you know, ancient blah, 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 you know. Right. People have
1: been living along Loch Ness for hundreds, thousands of years. Yeah. Long. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: uh, conveniently, there, there's uh, a little known movie, you might, you might have heard of it, uh, that came out in 1933 uh, called King Kong. <laughs> um, in which I'm familiar. In which uh, there's a scene that features King Kong fighting something suspiciously like a plesiosaur. It lives in the water. It's got a really long neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and coincidentally, uh, there was also a road built along the lock that sort of increased, sort of, you could see more of the lock at a time, I guess, mm-hmm. and just you know let more people drive alongside the, the lock, but. Right. Uh, sightings in 1933 sort of started off not very descriptive. Just some person, you know, telling like the local paper or something, Hey, I saw this weird thing in the (laughs) lock. And then throughout the year of 1933, which is there, there's a a lot of sightings from 1933. Um, of course, as the year goes on, you can sort of watch it. The, the reports morph into a more descriptive thing of uh, a plesiosaur-shaped animal, uh, presumably as more people saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, correlation is not causation. I'm not going to go for that logical fallacy, but uh, right, it's a little funky that that kind of happened. And then very <laughs> similar things with, um, like I said, some of those dinosaur-esque uh, cryptids from africa the most common one that you'll see talked about is called uh mokele mbembe and it's Mm -hmm. mostly known from like the congo river basin similar to the area where the okapi was found right but it's most commonly depicted as a sauropod like uh dinosaur you know the long necks long tails really big bodied dinosaurs uh but Just like with the plesiosaurs, it's often depicted with its neck held sort of straight vertical, which we know most of them. There are some that could, but still not quite like completely vertical, Mm -hmm. Uh, more of like a a ramp than a skyscraper. (laughs) But that's how Mokele Mbembe is often depicted with the big skyscraper neck. Uh, It's often depicted and talked about with its tail dragging on the ground, which is how we used to think about dinosaurs. And it's often depicted as living in swamps, which is not uncommon for like, like the area. Cause you know, it's the Congo river basin. It's very much similar to like the Amazon and it's, it's a rainforest. There's lots of swamps, mm-hmm. but that's an old trope of particularly sauropod dinosaurs in that when they were first found, they were like, these animals could not possibly have supported their own weight. They must've lived in water because they're so big that they just couldn't have been able to support themselves without crushing themselves. We now know today that that's not true, Mm -hmm. but you know, back when these stories about this first, you know, started hitting the mainstream, that was what was sort of talked about. Conveniently, that was when dinosaurs were getting incredibly popular and a lot of media attention in Oops. North America and Europe oh, around, course. around the uh, 1910s. And so, and um, I, I really hate these ones because like it, it really plays on that old trope of Africa being some, you know, old primitive, backward continent which obviously is kind of racist and not true just a little bit
0: <laughs> but uh i don't even blame people for doing it too because people don't always like know what they're talking about but like it's you know when you start thinking about it, it's like oh yeah like maybe we should be more careful with what we're talking about
1: right and it's like how, how this legend in particular is thought to have started because this is one of the better studied Ones in terms of like its origin. Mm -hmm. So people have taken. You know photos of. Large animals. That that are just real animals. Just not found there. And shown them to. You know native peoples who have never seen these animals before. Like photographs of them. And most often. They point to a rhinoceros. As what. Mokele Mbembe is. Or like at least Mm -hmm. what it looks most closest to. And so it's kind of thought that either, you know, like thousands of years ago or, you know, long, long time ago, rhinos used to live in the area or maybe that particular group of people moved into that area from a place where there were rhinos and they would just be telling, you know, folklore stories, you know, campfire stories, things like that or oral tradition, which is famously unreliable.
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's kind of the point.
1: Yeah. And. Uh, about rhinos and then over hundreds, thousands, who knows how many years it sort of morphed into, you know, uh, a, a something different that when European and North American researchers got there, they were told these stories. And then because dinosaurs were all the craze at the time, the, you know, colonizers were like, that sounds like a dinosaur.
0: that that's most
1: likely how this particular one kind of got started. Right. And then with things like, uh, Bigfoot, that one's very easy to sort of be like, okay, no, that's not Gigantopithecus because a Gigantopithecus (laughs) is most closely related to orangutans and was definitely a knuckle walker. And you always see Bigfoot, you know, that, the, that old, like super grainy, uh, video of it very much mm-hmm. walking on two legs arms only go down
0: to like you know maybe a little bit below the waist which has been disproven a thousand to, like that oh a hundred percent I mean I mean I get that you know we are dealing with some you know shady stuff but that specific video y'all right. know right we're talking about yeah like the one where it is walking
1: it. and then it turns and looks at the camera yeah, yeah. Right. um and there's also been sort of people that have proposed like, oh, it's, it's uh, a different group that is more closely related uh, to humans called the robust australopithecines, which are sort of a side group from what our genus Homo evolved from. Mm-hmm. And they were bigger boned and, and bigger bodied, but they were still pretty much human. They were definitely not even close to that big. And we're, we would know if they were still around. Right. Uh, And it's also, not sort of recently, but in the past been proposed that they're just Neanderthals who, like, reverted back to being more ape-like, and we're like, no, Neanderthals. If you walk down, you know, a busy city street, and a Neanderthal in, like, just regular clothing walked by you, you probably wouldn't notice. (laughs)
0: Like,
1: they're humans. Right. It's just a different kind of human. So... Yeah, there's, and there's one last bit about Cryptus I wanted to touch on, which, because this actually kind of popped up in my life recently, uh, which is sort of animals in places where they don't belong. <laughs> and with people keeping more and more different kinds of animals as pets, this has become less sort of spectacular because it's like, oh, somebody finds a crocodile in New York City. It makes the headlines, but nobody's like, there's a secret population of uh, crocodiles living here in New York City. No, like there's nobody serious that kind of thinks that. But right. uh, there are some legends and stories that do have a little bit more of like the folklore aspect to them. Um, and there is there is an actual name for this one, but I didn't write it down, sadly. But there's lots of legends of like a large cat-like kind of animal in Australia, which there really hasn't been other than like introduced just like domestic cats that have since gone feral. Um mm-hmm. for a really long time. Uh especially like with like cat like proportions. There's been like vaguely cat like marsupial predators, but they don't really have like the same proportions or like walking structure as a cat. Really? So like that's yeah. So like they might have the same like superficial shape, but marsupials walk very differently. Their limbs are just structured really differently than Uh, like non-marsupial mammals. Mm -hmm. Um, In particular, uh, there's, uh, and this actually was kind of in the news recently, but they recently recolored um, some new footage that they found of the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger, which was a real animal that we have uh, footage of the the last one that went extinct. It went extinct sometime in, uh, I think, the 30s. And so, They recently found some new footage of that last individual that, uh, we had, um, and they somehow, I don't know how people like recolor black and white footage to give it color, but they did. Um, (laughs) but people, even though, right. Yeah. Even though it's been extinct for, you know, 80 years or so, people still sort of claim every now and then that they see one, um, somewhere in Australia. Uh, they've been extinct, like on mainland Australia for quite a while. Um, before, oh, really? definitely before European settlers got there, uh, but they okay. were still found on the Island of Tasmania for mm-hmm. un, until, you know, relatively recently, but people still claim that they see them every now and then. And that's something that like, like the Australian government actually looks into because that then really? that, be, that becomes like a conservation sort of thing. Right. They don't, I don't know how seriously they take it, but, um, And then the one that happened to me sort of recently is mountain lions in New York. (laughs) So my, uh, I called my parents recently uh, since moving to California. Right. And just PSA. Talk to your parents more. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I called my parents my dad was like, yeah, I was driving home the other day and it was, it was dark out. Um, Actually, I don't know if he was going to or from work, but whatever. Um, And he was like, and I saw a mountain lion and I'm like, yeah. Oh, did you? Did you? He was like, yeah. <laughs> and like, we have bobcats and stuff around our house, but bobcats mm-hmm. and stuff don't have like the long tail that most other cats do. And that was the big thing that he said. It's like, yeah, it was big, and the tail was really long. But people are, and if my dad ever hears this, sorry, that's I, that's why I told him to set up some trail <laughs> cameras because I'm like, otherwise, I'm probably not going to believe you. Um yeah. But there is an occasional sighting sort of in the Adirondack Mountains. But right. generally, those are ones that kind of wandered into the state. There's not like a breeding population of mountain lions in the state, even in the Adirondack Mountains. There's there's really just not. Mm-hmm. And again, with humans doing a really good job of killing fairly large-sized mammals, we're really good at it. Uh, right. And so that sort of rounds out the different sort of aspects of cryptozoology and i kind of want to end off by saying a a few things about like my own view of cryptozoology and that one just because i'm kind of dumping on the science quote-unquote of it doesn't mean that i don't like it like like i said
0: just because it's not good science doesn't mean it's not fun well of course i mean that you can have you know these things can all be done you know in good fun um and done you know in a way that's you know, that's interesting or done rigorously or just done as a hobby. It's, you know, the dark side of the stuff that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, can really give people some bad ideas.
1: Right. It's, it's when you try and pass it off as science. And so I sort of, I sort of see cryptozoology in sort of two different ways. The first one is sort of like the poor man's conspiracy theory. Where it's like, I I know it's not true, but I still like the media that kind of surrounds it. Like, for example, uh, I I haven't watched it yet, but there is a a series on Hulu called Sasquatch. And uh, I actually checked the uh, sort of like Hulu page for it. Mm -hmm. There's currently three episodes up and the sort of premise of it is... That uh, in Northern California in 1993, uh, some journalist heard a story about, um, it says, uh, three men on a farm being torn limb from limb by a savage Bigfoot attack. So it's sort of treated, but it's him going back, you know, however many years later. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of treated as like a true crime thing, not, hey, let's go find Bigfoot. (laughs) Because, <laughs> like, the, the the way it's phrased, even in, like, the description as, um, let's see, the, this journalist that heard this story in 19, 1993 uh, said, the, let's see, Sasquatch, the name of the show, follows David as he revisits the Redwoods 25 years later in search of any evidence that might lead to the truth of what happened that night.
0: The so truth it's like of it's, what happened.
1: Yes, exactly. And I like the way they phrase that because they make it ambiguous enough to still make people want to read it, but not being like to he's returning 25 years later to go find Bigfoot. You know, that's not how this show is being pitched. Like I said, I have not seen the show. I will, I I intend to watch it at some point. Um, But that's the kind of like cryptozoology media that I enjoy, Uh, particularly if it's something that doesn't take itself too seriously. I really enjoy reading cryptozoology books and there was even like a cryptozoology TV show on like Cartoon Network when I was a kid Um, Was it really? Yeah, it was called The Secret Saturdays Um, I have no memory of this I watched a lot of Cartoon Network, I do not remember that I believe it was Cartoon Network anyway I I don't think it lasted long (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that's, that's one of the two ways in that it's, you know, fun, entertainment as long as it doesn't take itself too seriously and as long as you know it makes itself clear that it is entertainment yes the other way that i kind of see it is sort of as a gateway drug into more dangerous anti-science conspiracies such as things like young earth creationism or anti-vaxxing or flat earthers or things like that because cryptozoology in and of itself isn't all that dangerous relative to other sort of pseudosciencey things, you know, you're not hurting anybody by spending a bunch of your own money going and looking for Bigfoot, But but you're spreading that kind of really bad misconceptions about science because to most people, you know, if you were to show up in some small Northern California town or, you know, small town in Vermont or something being like, Hey, I came here from X other state. I'm a researcher looking for Bigfoot. They will think you're a scientist. They will think you're an official person from some official place looking for Bigfoot. Depending on how you pass yourself off, obviously. But it would not be hard to convince people of that.
0: And then that in turn... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, this is is something that's actually personal for me. Because I was... Um, when I was younger, I sort of got hit, you know, with the conspiracy bug and I went down some rabbit holes that I'm certainly not proud of now. And that's part of, uh, you know, part of what I'd like to do now is like really look into these, you know, the bizarro kind of the, you know, conspiracies to figure out like what's pulling people in and just, it can, like you said, and I see this with some social studies teachers sometimes when they want to talk about conspiracy theories, you know, what's, you know, let's do a class on conspiracy theories. And I always want to say, like, look at, you know, you can run your class however you want. If you want to talk about JFK, that's usually a pretty safe one. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take long to go from, you know, uh to go from oh, huh, I wonder what the truth is to eventually someone's gonna be like, so are the Jews. And yes. it's not yeah. it that happens faster than people realize, yeah. I think.
1: No, 100%. Like literally, if you, it's sort of like that old adage where it's like, if you talk, if, if a conversation goes on long enough, it will always end up going back to Hitler. Godwin's law. Absolutely. Um, is, I, I knew it had a name, but I couldn't remember it. it yes, it's sort Godwin's of law. like similar to that, but it's like, no, all conspiracy theories will eventually lead to Jewish people bad, which obviously is
0: not true.
1: It's a conspiracy Not endorsed theory. by
0: I Wish You Were Alive, a podcast about things that used to be alive. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Jeez, <laughs> wow.
1: Um, yes. Uh, obviously, podcast. obviously, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, conspiracy theories are horrible. Not endorsed here. But, you know, like I said, it's, it's a gateway drug because it seems, you know, zany and, and fun and spontaneous. You know, we're going to go run around and bang some sticks on some trees to call Bigfoot. You know, it, it seems innocent in that way but once the the internet algorithm algorithms and things realize oh you like this kind of stuff it will very quickly suck you into much more dangerous territory which is which is uh, the real yeah tragedy of a lot of things because like i said they can be fun if, if it's a kid's cartoon show
0: about cryptozoology hell yeah i'm in sign me up <laughs> But if you're watching national treasure about, you know, hidden maps and stuff, you know, enjoy yourself and you right. know, I will watch those movies right along with you. But, you know, there's the, the hidden side of all of this. Exactly. And so and, and a lot of
1: people in cryptozoology circles are also in a lot of those more, you know, insidious, more dangerous circles. And then they bring people from, you know, the cryptozoology side into their other conspiracies. And right. that and that's how conspiracies work, you know. It's it's a never ending rabbit hole.
0: And, and on that happy uh, note, yeah. On that happy <laughs> note, uh, this has been episode forty of "I Wish You Were Alive." Jeez, I did it again. Oh goodness. <laughs> episode the forty of "I Wish You man. Were Dead." Yeah, right. I think I've gotten it right every time until now. So I, guess I think so. <sighs> yeah, the, it, I wish you were dead. Podcast, but used to be alive. <laughs> Check the links in the description. That's Gavin. I'm Mike. You know, bye. <laughs> See everybody next Wednesday. Bye.
1: This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Finella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.